Hello, and welcome to the Emergence Monthly Podcast. I'm Joe Floyd. And I'm Doug Landis. Today, this morning, we're going to talk about the IPO market in 2017. You know, Joe, as we are thinking about 2017 or looking at 2017, it was supposed to be a really strong year for IPOs, but it kind of seems like things have cooled off. Is that is that the effect of the fact that it's summertime, or what, what, what are your kind of your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't know if it's because of summer. I would say that the year started off really strong with MuleSoft, Okta, Alteryx, Appian, all performing really well in their initial debuts. The average gain of that group's been about 40% this year. But more recently, the performance of companies like Snap and Blue Apron have really put a damper on things. What's going on there? Actually, I'm curious, because if you think about it, the first four or five companies you mentioned, those are all B2B SaaS companies, and then the two companies that are really struggling are B2C companies. Now, do you think that is that has something to do with it, or, 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 or what? Yeah, I, I don't know that that necessarily has something to do with it. I do think that they're very, very public. They're very visible. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, their metrics haven't really been there since they went public. In both cases, they're down about 50% since IPO. Snap, in particular, this week is under pressure given that their lockup is expiring. And their user acquisition numbers have really flattened out. And I think for Blue Apron, this is a similar story where user acquisition costs were really increasing. And that, that stock has really struggled. It's down about 50% in the last six weeks since its IPO. And I don't think it ever actually closed above its IPO price, which is uh, which is not good for anyone that invested. No, no, no. Although I would argue <laughs> at Box, we're still kind of struggling to get back up to our IPO price as well. Well, we came out at, four, what is it, 14 or 18 and then went up to 24. Yeah, but now, now you're at like 19. So yeah. you guys are still solidly at Yes, uh, totally, totally agree. I, I think it's safe to say that the market is definitely holding companies much more tightly to their metrics. Yeah, it's a combination of, of being held tightly to the metrics and, and also I think the underwriters, particularly in Snap, really pushed for like the, the best possible pricing. Mm. I think that hurt that hurt the company, you know, hurt, hurt their ability to have that kind of pop and that successful um, coming out party. Yeah. Uh, but then you look at a company like Redfin, which had a much more appropriate price and has had has traded up about 40 percent since the since last week when it when it went out. So yeah, I mean I, I'd say that the market is still open, and hopefully if, if companies like Redfin do well, and then there's a couple more in the pipe, then the the market might look good in the fall. So who do we see kind of back half of this year that that we're keeping our eyes out? I know Spotify sounds like they're going to be coming out soon. I was just reading this morning that they may be going direct instead of you know through the traditional channels. Yeah, what does that mean for our audience? <laughs> I, from what I understand, new to this, but going direct basically means you don't use underwriters, you don't go on the same roadshow. You basically just offer your shares direct. They're going to the New York Stock Exchange to anybody that wants to buy them. Yeah, right. And which also means you don't have any long-term heavy investors, like you know, like a Goldman or a hedge fund that's buying into you long-term. At least right out of the gate, you give them the opportunity to buy it. But now everyone's, I guess, kind of on equal footing. Like you and I can buy basically at the same prices, you know, the folks over at Goldman. Yeah. Maybe they should have done it as an initial coin offering. They could have done it on Ethereum. <laughs> Everyone, anyone could have bought it. Um, yeah, I mean, Google was the last company that really tried to do a non-traditional IPO, and obviously, that worked out. At the time, it was they felt like they left money on the table. But you know, you fast forward ten years, and it all all of it looks good. I think they're doing okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anybody, any other companies that we see in the back half of this year that might be interesting, and we should keep our eyes out on? You know, the, there's always been rumblings about Dropbox potentially going out. So. Yeah. I but think that, I just read last week that they were thinking about not ever going out. Why? Why? I, do you think? I, I have no idea. Well, I mean, I guess if you don't have to, and your investors aren't pushing you for it, life is probably easier as a private company CEO if you're yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Interesting. So, so well, we, look, we know the the IPO markets certainly all over the place. 
um, but we had some pretty pretty significant exits, right? Regardless of, of IPOs. Yeah, I mean, big news for you know enterprise M&A and for Emergence was that our portfolio company, Intact, announced that it will be acquired by Sage for $750 million. And uh, we have special guest Brian Jacobs with us, founding partner at Emergence and board member at Intact, who is going to share the story. Brian, first, tell us what Intact does. Sure, so Intact provides a cloud accounting system. If you wanna run your books and have it have all the benefits of the cloud, Intact is one of the few companies that has a very robust accounting system run as a cloud service. Great, and when did Emergence first get involved? So we, our first investment was in 2005. We had seen the great success of Salesforce and we, we realized that there were other applications that were gonna move to the cloud. We also saw that uh, cloud applications were beginning to talk to each other, exchange data in the cloud. And we realized that the financial system is super important as a system of record when lots of applications are talking to each other. So we felt very strongly that when financials moved to the cloud, there was gonna be a major opportunity and we, we found that opportunity in Intact. That makes sense, but as we know, financials are really the heart of every company and so it's almost like doing a heart transplant to sell that. I imagine things weren't always smooth sailing at Intact. Can you share maybe some of the challenges that were faced along the way? Yeah, so different applications have moved to the cloud at different rates. CRM went very quickly, but the financial system has always been a laggard. As you mentioned, it's really the uh, core application for a lot of companies. It's critical to, to be completely robust and accurate. And CFOs are not really leading adopters of new technology. For a long time, while we knew this was going to happen, sales were quite slow. It took a lot of effort to convince companies in the early days that the cloud was actually more secure and more reliable than a system they could run on-premise. What are some of the ways that you're able to overcome those challenges? You know, there, I think there was no shortcuts. We had to develop a very robust product that really was reliable and the companies really could rely on. And then we had to uh, learn how to sell it and how to convince companies that they could rely on the system and without worrying about security or reliability issues. Okay, so it sounds like over the course of about 12 years, brick by brick, Intact was, was built over time and achieved kind of an ultimate validation with a, with a big acquisition. So maybe tell us a little bit about, a, a little bit about how that acquisition came together. Sure, so um, the buyer, Sage, has participated in the U.S. market in the past, but they, the products that they were offering the market had become older and older. And as a result, increasingly, Sage did not have a strong play in the U.S. We knew that, that this was an important strategic market for them, and we had maintained conversations with them for, for many years. Initially, they didn't, really didn't want to pay the price that we thought the company was worth, but every year we grew by 30 to 50%. And so every year our price expectations went up. And finally, Sage came to us and, and offered us a price that we thought was fair and justified the value that we had created at Intact. Yeah, that's great. And congrats to you and congrats to the team. Looking back on the whole journey, what insights have you learned that you want to share with the world? Well, it's a, it was a, a very gratifying experience to work with a team to build what has become the leading independent player in cloud accounting. And really, there are no shortcuts in some businesses. I think you have to get the execution right. You need to recruit a team that 
executes quarter after quarter, and then you have to make your customers happy. And I'm really proud of the team at Intact and the, their ability to accomplish that goal. Great, thanks for sharing, Brian. So Doug, what else did Emergence do in the month of July? Well, we announced that we invested $15 million in a company called Impartner, which is really exciting for us. Yeah, what does Impartner do? So Impartner, Salt Lake City-based company that is involved in the partner relationship management space, right? So if you think about like Salesforce for a long time had PRM, partner relationship management, a product that they're spending a lot less time and focus and energy on. They kind of more focus on their community solution, but these guys offer specific a specific solution for building out custom portals for your partners, allowing your partners to do deal registration. It's all integrated into your CRM, so you can really track your partner's activities for opportunities as as almost to the same degree as you track your direct sales organization. Yep. Very, very important solution, especially as more and more companies are thinking about how to expand their, their sales function within an organization, and partnerships are a great way to do that. So if I'm a CEO out there, do I need this if I only have a few partners? Do I only need this if I have thousands of partners? Like when does this become valuable? Yeah, I mean, I think it's valuable in, in, in both situations. If you only have a few partners, I mean, it's a matter of like how many deals you're actually registering. Well, I'd say there's two components. One is the kind of the partner portal, right? Which is, so how do we give all the right information to our partners, ensure that they are as educated and up to speed in our company and our products and our solutions as our direct organization is. That's a very important part of it. Organizing a, a portal that basically drafts on what you do internally for your own employees is actually a lot harder than what people think, right? It's like, it's not like, let's put up a WordPress press site and, and, and do that because there are actual real tactical actions that you want your partners to take through that portal, like deal registration, right? So again, whether you have two partners or you have 2000 partners, it's really about, about the amount of information you're trying to share with them and then the amount of deals and opportunities that they're involved in, right? So the more opportunities that they're that they're participating in, the more likely you're gonna need a partner relationship solution. Makes total sense, and we're glad we have a partner to solve that problem. Yeah, yeah, we're li really looking forward to, uh, to helping them grow and become another one of our billion dollar success stories. Joe, what else have you seen in the enterprise space in terms of the month of July, in terms of financings did you, that caught your eye? Sure, uh, there were a few big rounds announced in July. Segment, a uh, customer data platform, raised 64 million. And I think it's pretty notable because Y Combinator's new continuity fund, the, their growth investment fund, led the round. And we're really seeing them be more active in the market right now. We also saw them lead a $62 million round in Convoy, Uber for trucking company based in Seattle. And that was the first time that they had led an investment in a company that didn't go through Y Combinator. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, so their just, continuity fund's actually investing more broadly beyond just their YC early stage investments. Yes, and that's what happens when you raise a billion dollar fund. You have to put it to work, and so I don't. I don't know if that if, if that's a good or bad thing long term for them. It's it's just, but it is interesting to see that move play out. Yeah. What sure. about you, Doug? What did what did you see this month? We're seeing a lot in the product kind of UX engagement space. Um, if you look at companies like WalkMe, they just raised seventy five million, led by Insiders, uh, and Pendo. Um, sorry, and. Pendo, another company, also just raised 25 million led by Ameritech. And you know, I think the UX engagement space is really, really interesting because more and more people are realizing that they need, you know, technology is simple, but I always say this, technology is easy, but change is hard. And when trying to change user behaviors, you need kind of the, you need the 
guidance, right? You need kind of like that, uh, I don't know, the way Walk Me like basically walks you through how to actually use a product. We all think that like, say, let's take Salesforce as an example. Salesforce is super easy to use, but if you leave one company that's using Salesforce and go to another, the way in which, the way in which they use it, how they have their field set up, what they require you to do is so dramatically different. So functionally, the product's still the same. It's how you actually use it, which is uh -huh. different. So these UX engagement platforms and technologies like WalkMe and Pando are really, really powerful and really necessary today because I don't have time to sit down and figure out how do I use this, right? And while, you know, as engineers, we always think like, oh, this is the easiest thing in the world to use, but it is for you because you're in the company. When you're outside the company, it's a lot harder, Yep. right? I think it's a great opportunity. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that these two companies take different approaches to the same problem. WalkMe is very much, if you're the internal expert at Box and you want all of your Salesforce users at Box to know how to use that product, you use you can use WalkMe to show them how to do that. Yep. And Pendo is on the other side saying, if you are Salesforce, the company, you can you can have this UX layer on top so that you can train the trainer at company X that bought Salesforce. So it's almost like a it's almost like a two different approaches to the same problem. Right. It'll be interesting to watch them duke it out over the next uh, few years. Yeah, but it's it's necessary. Mm -hmm. right? It's a necessary evil. The question I have is if you're a UX designer for any company, why aren't you automatically incorporating this kind of technology into your design, right? So you make it easier to drive adoption, make it easier for people to actually just use and get up and running, right? Yeah. Why and isn't it baked in? That's the third leg of the stool when you think about all these product analytics companies like Mixpanel or Amplitude that are also going to be having features like this driven by analytics in the product. Yeah. So it'll be an interesting space to watch for sure. Great. Well, let's let's move on to our favorite subject of the day, Doug's deep dive. What's uh, what's our topic of the day? So our topic for today is sales intelligence tools and technology. Pretty broad topic, if you will, especially given the fact that there are thousands of companies that are in this space of we'll call it kind of sales intelligence, right? And so what that means basically is there are tools that are the tools that are out there that, are, that you, we use as salespeople to help you identify contacts, identify information about those contacts or about that company or about a market that you're going after, right? Lots of tools have some level of intelligence. Um, and they could be triggers that are reminded you, like you've got a meeting coming up today. It's gonna tell you information about that person, maybe about the company as well, or anything interesting in the news, right? It's kind of like modern day RSS feeds, right? There's a lot of tools out there that really provide that level of detail. What's interesting and what I'm finding more and more frequently is, you know, when we think about it, buyers today, want, they expect you to know more than you actually do. And what's really interesting when you think about these tools that are out there and that are available, they don't actually provide you the level of details of which the buyers expect you to know about them and their company. Hmm. Let me give you some examples. Um, as a buyer, it's important that for you to know about me, my business, but more than that, I want you to know about my role specifically. What do you think I do? I want you to know about the challenges that I face in my role. I want you to have an idea as to whether or not our firms have ever worked together in the past in any way, shape or form. I want you to know about my marketplace, about my competitors, my internal ecosystem, like who's who in the zoo and how do we make decisions. I want you to know, and then of course as a buyer too, I also wanna know well, why are you the best choice for us, yeah. right? Not just in general, but for us specifically given where we are in the market, 
right? In some cases, it's, you know, if you, if you go back and you read, you know, like the 10K or the 10Q of a company, what you're really looking for is what are they trying to achieve as a company? And then how is that overall company goal how is it that the role that you're speaking to or you're calling on, how does their responsibility roll up to that goal? Sure. So isn't this what a discovery call is for? Is it just that now buyers expect you to be really prepared already for that call? Absolutely. I don't want to have to go over all this information on a discovery call. I expect you to come. First of all, you got to remember as a buyer, I'm doing a bunch of research already, right? Mm -hmm. And so my mm -hmm. expectation is that you've already done your homework on me. Let's get away from these kind of these basic, what you call kind of situational questions that are just kind of st it's standard information that if you did some homework, you, you should know about. Because yeah. ideally what I want you to come to the conversation with are some insights. Right. Yep. I think there's kind of two different levels of sales intelligence tools out there. There are the sales intelligence tools that provide you access to kind of basic firmographic information, right? So like company name, revenue, subsidiaries, physical locations, contact information, right? Key employees. That's all really basic. And that has a tendency to be where we traditionally focus our efforts. Like 83% of companies out there have a tool or technology that provide that level of detail for their reps. And most of those companies stop short. That's all they give them. But what they need is additional tools, what we'll call advanced sales intelligence tools, right? Which actually give them further insights that yeah. help to answer some of those questions that I, we were just talking about before, right? And so these advanced tools and technologies are gonna go like crawl the web, share insights with you, share trigger events, give you much richer data about mm -hmm. the company and the individual. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it goes back to one of our company's sales loft that is trying to make sales very personal, right? It's trying to enable the rep or enable the SDR to really customize their message and tailor it for that specific person, not even that company, but that specific person at the company. Yeah, um, yeah. And it, and it has to do more with just the fact that like, oh, you're the VP of sales or you're the, you know, the head of marketing. It's like, okay, you need to know more about them other than just their title and their name and where they came from, right? And, yep. and so if you think about it, the question is, is what are these advanced intelligence tools and platforms? We kind of need to think about what are they, some of the basic ones. Like data.com to me is like the super basic one. Yeah, sure. Just lightweight yep. firmographic information. LinkedIn's starting to get into kind of deeper, richer levels of intelligence. I could argue the likes of a LinkedIn or an inside view because they're going to give you those alerts about what's happening with a company, what's happening in the industry, maybe who, based on their connections, can kind of get a sense of the org chart. But I think it's companies like companies like Scorio that really take this kind of analytical, big data approach to sales intelligence, which is which is really interesting. Scorio, Ativo, there's a handful of other companies that are kind of taking this sales intelligence to a whole nother level. You can even argue like companies like DataFox or even Crunchbase are really starting to do that as well, right? Because they realize, you know, reps need more than just that basic firmographic information. Yeah, that's true. You mentioned scraping as a source of this data. <laughs> It'll be really interesting to see how many of those folks, you know, scrape LinkedIn for their data. I think you saw that, uh, you know, now LinkedIn is actually being sued as opposed to being the person who usually sues people. LinkedIn's being sued for trying to stop companies from accessing publicly available LinkedIn data. Yeah. What, yeah. How, do you, how do you think that's going to play out? What LinkedIn puts out there that's public through Google, right? If I do a general search in Google and it gives me some, some basic firmographic information, that's totally open and available to the public and that should be free, right? So. I think it makes a ton of sense. The real value for, for LinkedIn is the, the kind of, we'll call it the more enriched data set, right, that they have that you can get through Navigator, 
right? So it's like, leave the guys alone if they just wanna scrape the free data. That doesn't really matter because what you really wanna do is, and where the real value is, is in that more enriched company personal contact data that they have through Navigator. Mm-hmm. And, I th- and ultimately that's where, that's where we need to be. That's why their licenses are so expensive because there's so much great information in there. I think what now needs to happen is all that stuff needs to get surfaced up and it needs to be packaged in a way that it's easier for me to consume and also use in personalized emails, right? It's easier for me to use in phone calls. Make it less heavyweight lifting that I still, I mean, you still have to do it, unfortunately. Even if I go to Navigator, I still have to kind of compartmentalize and and pull all that information out after doing some searches. The technology today shouldn't make me do that. It should just give it to me. I agree. And I think maybe long-term, they're thinking that Dynamics will will have that tight LinkedIn partnership and maybe maybe they'll be the ones who really reap the benefit of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ideally, the goal here is such that we get to more meaningful, deeper Mm -hmm. connections and conversations with our prospects. And and as a buyer, that's what I want. Don't waste my time with this simple, basic firmographic information. You should know all that. Great. Sales intelligence kind of reminds me of the fact that the proliferation of sales intelligence tools kind of reminds me about the fact that like any anybody that's new that's building a new technology today, when you put it when they put up their kind of their competitor graph, in the back of my head I always wonder, well, where's Amazon in that picture, right? Because it seems like they're getting into every single every single business. Yeah, that's um, so funny. So today I, I saw an article that said the word Amazon was mentioned more times uh, on earnings calls in this past quarter than at any previous quarter in in the context of competition, right? Really? Yeah, just saw that this morning. Wow, so they're everywhere, really? They are, they're <laughs> everywhere. And as a result, it's been very good for the, uh, for the team at Amazon. Jeff Bezos actually became the richest man in the world for exactly one day. <laughs> uh, last week, uh, Amazon hit an intraday high of $1,083 a share. Wow. Which meant that he passed his Seattle counterpart, Mr. Bill Gates, who, by the way, made it an enterprise software. So you know, yay enterprise. Unfortunately for Bezos, his, me- his moment at number one was very short-lived as Amazon stock is now down 10% in the last few sessions. So why is that? What's going on with Amazon? Well, Amazon's revenue growth is still spectacular. I mean, they're 25% growth quarter over quarter, or I should say year over year in the quarter, but their net margins fell dramatically this past quarter. And, you know, they've always had low margins. In fact, without AWS, Amazon would be entirely unprofitable meaning that the e-commerce site is just losing money. Even at 100 plus billion of revenue, they're just losing money. Hmm. It'll be really interesting to see how that plays out because as Google Cloud and Microsoft Cloud get more and more competitive, I mean, I can only see AWS's margins getting more under pressure. So it'll be interesting to see how the public markets uh, see that story play out. So I'm curious, what what can we share with our, our audience? What kind of learnings can we take away from this? Well, if you want to be the richest man in the world, or the richest person in the world, you definitely have to move to Seattle. That's that's where one and two are. Ah, wow. Well, I don't know. If I'll take for, I'll take move, the Bay Area. Move there, move there, even if only for a day. That's all you need. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap. That's about all we have. You know, it is summertime, so we're going to keep it pretty light. And as Joe always, always likes to say as we wrap, everyone out there, you stay sassy.